Christmas has just become, you guys know this, it's become a massive cultural moment. Um, it's not like it used to be. Even when I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, um, I mean, Christmas has always been a big deal. It just seems like it's been just amplified. We were, we were in Target, Melissa and I, the week before Halloween, and there, this is how I like to describe it. There was a depressingly impressive Christmas display the week before Halloween. Um, and it was just like, man, I haven't even got my Halloween candy yet. I, I'm not like, I love Christmas, but I'm not, I'm not ready for this yet. Um, but that's kind of the expectation now for us. We, we expect the world to become Christmasized earlier and earlier every year. But the actual story of Christmas, which is this divine night when Christ was born, it can become dull to us. And we so easily lose our sense of wonder for how astonishing the events that led to Jesus coming into the world really are. We can forget the miracle of how it all began. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about the origin story, really focusing on Joseph and Mary. And what God did is he sort of rewrote the stories of their lives in ways that they had not anticipated. So we're going to do that. We're going to look into their origin story. I remember back in the, um, the late 90s when people lost their minds, uh, if you're old enough to remember this, after George Lucas announced he was making new Star Wars movies. It was a thing, right? And then how they, well, they, how they lost their minds when they discovered how bad those movies were after they watched all three of them in, in, in succession. But um, in any story, it's important to know how it all Began. We want to know the origin of our stories. And the Gospel of Luke, it, it, the Gospel of Luke provides some, just some crazy details for us about the origin of Christ's birth. And it helps to remind us that God is constantly writing and rewriting our story. God just has a habit of doing that. God is creating an origin story in all of our lives. And then he begins to write and rewrite that story because he is the author. So what we just read through the first seven verses of Luke chapter two is a, a census um, is announced by the emperor and what that meant was that for tax purposes, for taxation purposes, Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem which would have been their ancestral home um, to be registered. And it, and it just so happens that they go at this particular time when Mary uh, is pregnant and she's ready to give birth. Why that's astonishing is that they just didn't dumb luck their way into Bethlehem. This was something that was prophesied back in the, in the book of Micah. You don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there. Micah 5, verse 2. This is uh, the minor prophet. I don't, we call him minor because he just, his book wasn't as long. He was, he was probably a major figure at the time. But the minor prophet Micah, um, he says this, prophesying about what was going to be coming hundreds of years from that point. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so we have even hundreds of years ago, we have this little town, like we just sang, of Bethlehem, who was going, which was going to be the birthplace of Christ the King. 
And it doesn't just happen in the way that we would imagine a king coming into the world. So we're going to look at some of the unique things that happened as God presented his son to the world. We're going to look at some of the origins that were in place, especially for Joseph and for Mary as as we unpack these, even just these first seven verses. And the first one is this, is that it it was an origin of scandal. Now, you gotta, you got to read some of the other gospel accounts to get sort of a fleshing out of what's going on in these first seven verses. But Mary, Mary was a small-town girl she, she, of absolutely no social significance. No social significance. And that's important to note. And in fact, let, let's just go back to Luke chapter 1 and, and read from verse 26 to get a little more of a, of kind of a, of a, of a full view of what's going on with Mary. It says in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Let me stop right there because this betrothed thing, it wasn't married, but it was a little more than how like we get engaged now. So when you got betrothed to somebody, it was almost like being married, except you just didn't live together yet. And in fact, if you were to break off a betrothal, it was going through the same steps that it would have taken to get a divorce back in that day. So when you were betrothed to somebody, you were as good as hitched, but you just weren't living with that person yet. So it says in verse 27, uh, virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now notice what she said. Now notice Mary's response here. She was, in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Again, look at Mary's response in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the son of God. And so we, we see this miraculous, astonishing thing happen to somebody that was completely unsuspecting of it happening, this woman, this very young woman named Mary. Imagine receiving news like this. Imagine receiving news this shocking. The Messiah was finally coming. This Messiah that had been prophesied for years and years, thousands of years, was finally coming. And Mary, this woman, this very young woman of no social or cultural significance, was the one chosen to deliver him. Mary is well aware of her ordinary place in the world. She doesn't see herself as deserving of something this historic and prophetic and miraculous of a thing. She doesn't see herself as being the one that, that deserves to have the favor of God upon her like the angel just communicated to her. I mean, this wasn't a woman that was like, I always knew someday I would be the mother of God, right? It was a dream of mine. It was one of my goals. That's not what we're seeing with the heart of Mary. And, and another fun fact was that she was also unmarried, which causes confusion to her until the angel tells her that her baby will be conceived 
by the Holy Spirit. Joseph will not be the biological dad of this son. And this is astonishing. This is astonishing. We can only imagine what that news, how that would have fallen on Mary. It would have fallen on her the way it falls on us today if that would have happened, right? It was miraculous. And by the way, not just miraculous, right? If it's just miraculous, we can kind of approach it and we can create a holiday around it. We can have angels and we can have decorations and we can just sort of sanitize it. But this was scandalous. It was scandalous, right? God allows the birth of his son to happen in such a way that only those who receive him as savior will know who his true father is. In fact, when we read the story of John, which is kind of a parallel story of John the Baptist in Luke 1, there's there's no question that John's father is Zechariah the priest. Mary, on the other hand, she's going to begin her role as the mother of Jesus under the scandal of fornication because Jesus was not conceived by a human father. So it's It's worth noting that of all the ways God could have orchestrated the birth of his son, of all the ways he could have done it, he's God, he could have done it any one of a million ways, he chose Mary, a girl of zero notoriety or noble family lineage to be the mother and Joseph, just local carpenter, to be the adopted father. And he did it, listen to this, knowing that 30 years later, Jesus would still be looked upon by his community as an illegitimate son. It's astonishing that for Mary and Joseph to obey God meant that people would whisper, they would gossip, and they would slander and put their reputation into question for years. What's more interesting is that Neither Joseph or Mary let that dictate their decisions. Mary and Joseph submit themselves to the Lord's will. We also don't read anywhere that they felt the need to defend themselves. They walked through this origin of scandal with quiet hearts. They're a model for us in that sense. They're a model for us that even though Jesus might appear scandalous, in the eyes of the world, it doesn't need to produce, you know, a scandalous heart in us. It, do, it doesn't need to make us aggressive or defensive. We trust our reputation to the Lord, like Joseph and Mary. And so as we read in, in verses one through seven, they, they make their way to Bethlehem to be registered because we're told Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. The reason why Luke mentions those details is that, so that his readers understand that this was indeed the Messiah that was prophesied to come from the line of David the king to be the truer, to be the better king than Israel's beloved King David. So we see that Joseph and Mary come into this thing, their origin story in delivering Jesus into the world was under just the umbrella of scandal. You know what else it was? It was also under the umbrella of poverty. So not only just an origin of scandal, 
but also an origin of poverty. Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. It's crowded. And Mary's time to give birth has arrived, so it turns out that they can only find shelter in a stable. Which, by the way, when they talk about stable here, um, this could have been one of a few different kinds of things. Um, it could have been a cave. Some people think the, the stable or where Jesus was born was something that was carved out of a hill where they have evidence of, lot of, of a lot of those old stables um, being built that way back at that particular time. It also could have been that because he was laid in a manger and mangers were typically out in the open, that this was something that happened literally just out in the open. Jesus was laid in this manger, and here they were with no shelter, just in the middle of something where animals were feeding, and there was a lot of exposure. There was a lot of vulnerability there. It also could have been um, just in a house. Um, so a stable could also double as a house at that time where animals were just living right alongside uh, families because they were poor, they were impoverished, and that's all the room that they had. And before you think that's crazy, remember we live with cats and dogs, right? So, it, you know, in that sense. But, but it could have been one of those three things. Um, regardless, either way, um, this is kind of an astonishing development if you've been planning the birth of your baby. So we just want to pause again and let our imaginations do some work here, right? To think that God would have his son the savior and king of the world born in a stable? Again, it, 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 it reframes our mind back to the way that God thinks. Not the way we think. Not the way we do things. But the way God does things in the way that he wants to do them as a way to reflect his heart, right? Imagine it like this. Imagine if the, the king and queen of England sent their pregnant daughter and son-in-law to London and had them give birth in a parking garage. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent. Can you imagine the headlines? I mean, literally, can you imagine the headlines? Can you, can you um, imagine the outrage and the confusion if the royal family gave birth to the next heir of the throne in a parking garage in London? Why would they do that? Right? That would be the question. Why would they do that? Why not Buckingham Palace? Why not the nicest hospital in Great Britain? You would just wonder all of those things. And yet we read this and we go, yeah, Jesus born in the stable. Anyway, what does verse 8 say? It just kind of goes in one ear and it goes out the other ear. And we don't, we don't just capture what, it, what is it that's going on. It, we don't back away and go, God, what's the narrative here? What is the story that you're writing with this couple that you just brought into scandal? This, this couple that were impoverished, it's astonishing that God would allow his only begotten son to be born into this level of scandal and poverty. But we remember, and it's so helpful for us to remember, it's so helpful for us to remember that God operates at a different level, at a different way of thinking than we do. He, he operates on a different socioeconomic scale than the world. His values can't be measured by dollars and cents. He didn't want his son to be born in a mansion. He wanted his son to be laid in a manger, right? He didn't want his son born to people of privilege, but to people who were poor in spirit. God arranged the birth of his son to reflect 
the heart of his son. Isaiah 53 reminds us when it tells us something about the heart of Jesus. It said he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So we get, we get just a... We get a picture of the character of God, which Jesus is going to reflect in his own character because he is God when he is walking the earth. Remember in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you, learn from me because I'm the all conquering king who was born on the mansion in the hill and I'm going to dominate the world. That's not what he says. He says, learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm lonely in heart. He said, learn from me because you will find rest for your souls if you come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and are bogged down by life. I understand your grief because I'm acquainted with it. I understand your sorrow because I am a man of sorrows. That is the person that God sent to be the savior of the world. We're uncomfortable with that. We just start, like it sounds good. It sounds good, but we're actually uncomfortable with that, right? Like that whole scenario I just laid out about, you know, like the king and queen, baby born in the parking garage, the world would be outraged. The world would be outraged. We're uncomfortable with a savior that doesn't feel like an all-conquering Marvel universe hero, right? Somebody that we can prop up and admire and worship in our comic books or in our sports or in our politicians. But God says, you know what? You all look at the wrong things. Remember when he said that to Samuel, when Samuel was trying to find the king to succeed King Saul, who had just been a disaster of a king? God sent Samuel to find the new king. It was gonna be David. And he goes to Jesse, the father, and he goes through all of David's brothers. And these dudes are, I don't know, they're all like, they all are impressive. I don't know, they all got big muscles. I don't know, right? They all seem talented. They're skilled. And then David just kind of comes up. And God goes, no, that's the guy. And Samuel's kind of stunned, like, oh, that's the guy? The last born? The guy that doesn't get any of the, the, the family inheritance? Him, the shepherd guy? And God goes, Yes, because you look at the wrong things, Samuel. You look at the outward appearance. I look, I look at the heart. You know, when God sent Jesus to establish the kingdom of God, it's what's called, what some people call an upside-down kingdom. And what that means is that it's a kingdom where the meek inherit the earth. It's a kingdom where those who have a a poverty and a humility of spirit will be who God lifts up and who he saves. Mary and Joseph represented the humble heart of Jesus, who, by the way, came to save the humble of heart, right? We can't even enter into a, a, a relationship with Jesus until we humble ourselves, until we come to him and say, I don't have what it takes. I need you, Jesus. I need your righteousness because I can't, I can't muster it up on my own. It's impossible. I need you. So we humble ourselves before the Lord. 
And it's the humble that the Lord receives. I think it's so important for us to remember that. Especially when you think of the manner in which the church can sometimes behave and respond in our day and age of outrage, right? We need to think about that really deeply. We probably need to repent of our response and our reactions. James reminds us, James, the brother of Jesus, he said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Do you still think God just reverses the trends? He just reverses everything. It's not what you think. I'm gonna bring my son into the world. I'm gonna do it with a couple of parents who are gonna have scandal, follow them around the rest of their lives. And he's gonna be born in abject poverty. And in fact, and we're gonna kind of get into this next week, I'm only gonna let a few people even witness this. It's the worst marketing campaign of all marketing campaigns. That's what he did. Origin of scandal, origin of poverty. The third thing and our final thing, origin of obedience. That's the big one. It's astonishing when a person obeys God despite the pain it will cause. Despite the consequences it will bring and the life that will follow as the result. Mary and Joseph's obedience, it was a foretaste. It was a foretaste of the obedience of Jesus himself who went through so much pain, who endured so many consequences and a life that ended in death for a people that rejected him. What a picture for us. What, what a picture of Joseph and Mary, these hum, this humble-hearted man, this humble-hearted woman in scandal, in poverty, but in obedience to bring in to the world the one who would obey God for our forgiveness and for our hope. It's a heartbreaking story, a story that begins in obedience, but it ends in glory. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, Jesus obeyed God so that we could obey Jesus and we might have stories that would end in forgiveness and glory like Jesus's. Although he didn't need the forgiveness part. Let me qualify that. The question for us is what is our origin story? Do you have an origin story with Jesus? Because it's a story that will end in glory like it did for Jesus. If you do, it will be an astonishing testimony of God's love for you. When you confess that your heart is spiritually impoverished, it's your first step to a life of obedience that has eternity with Jesus in view. It's incredible. 
It's astonishing. It all happened because of this one night where the Son of God came to the earth out of obedience to the Father. Being born again means that Jesus gives you a new origin story. And it will likely be one filled with obstacles because following Jesus is really hard. But more significantly, be filled with obedience, which is what leads to life with Jesus forever. And so we have these stories, right, that God is writing, that God is rewriting. And at some point, everybody here that calls Jesus their Savior was given an origin story where Jesus was birthed in your heart. And everything changed after that. And you know what? Not everything changed, too, because you're still battling sin. Thankfully, that's where God's grace comes in. That's how the Holy Spirit, now living in our hearts, moves and shapes us, makes us more like Jesus. Sometimes we have days, weeks, months, years where it doesn't feel like that's happening, but it's happening. And when we read stories like what happened with Joseph and Mary, we get the sense that we don't know what God is up to, but God is up to. He's doing something. We don't know what God is doing. Joseph and Mary, they did not know what God was doing. But God was doing. 20 years ago, My wife and our daughter got kicked out of the condominium we were living in. That sounds dramatic, Um, but actually we were were living in a condominium that we couldn't afford, and the guy that owned it said, I'm selling it, so I don't know how to say this, but you need to leave. Um, So we had to move 40 minutes up the road, and it was a horrible horrible move. Um, We were super scared. We were leaving behind everybody we knew from the first eight years of our life. Daughter was sad. She was about seven years old at the time. Um, We had no idea what was going on in our lives. But it led to a church that led to me meeting pastors, that led to us meeting people that if you just take the story and you keep rolling with it, it's literally how we got here. And there's a weird line, really clear line, that winds all the way through it. You know how clear that line was 20 years ago? Not clear. Not clear at all. It wasn't even a road, right? It was just a field of weeds. And God was carving a path through it for us. We had no idea. And there was some scandal in it. And there was all kinds of things that we would do over. And there was all kinds of relationships that were up and down. And yet God used all of those things just like he's using things today that we just, we can't even conceive of. We don't even know. But an origin story with Jesus is one that is filled along the way with all of these subplots of redemption. Because the plot line has already been cast for you if you know Jesus. You are, you are redeemed. You, are, you, are, you have been taken by Jesus. You are his own now. But there's all these other subplots in the story that we 
that we can't really know where they're going and how they're moving. But they're always redemptive. And most of the time, they're, they're really hard. In fact, all of the things in our lives, all these subplots that the world sees as things to be avoided, God uses a lot of those things to rewrite a story that, again, keeps moving him back into the center because he is actually the plot line that he's getting us back to. Advent reminds us that God rewrites our stories with a narrative that brings renewal back to the plot lines of our lives because, because of Jesus, you and I can, we can have all new origin stories. Your guilt and shame removed. Your love and devotion to idols reordered. Your suffering and your wounds redeemed. Takes time. Your heart against God restored. And so the question that you need to ask yourself is whether you have an origin story with Jesus. Maybe it's time to remember that you have had an origin story with Jesus and you need to ask how your story will change how you move through the story of Christmas into the new year. Because here's what an origin story with Jesus produces for us. It produces some things. It does some things for us, even in the unknowingness. It gives us hope. It makes us hopeful. Because the words of God now, throughout Scripture, they're your promises. They're the anchor that you have. They're the thing that you have that will keep you steady and sure. So you now have a hopefulness that you didn't have before when you have an origin story with Christ. It also... It also provides humility for you because he's going to change you. And with change comes pain. But knowing that God is the one behind all the different ways he's moving and winding your life to change and to sanctify you just reinforces that hope, right? And then three, there's happiness. There's happiness. Later, we're going to learn that as Mary stepped back and she looked at all of these events that were happening, it said that she stored all of these things up in her heart. She was reflective. She was able to step back and look and see the way God was moving and trust him. We can have happiness because there is, there is nothing that we're going to face in the absence of God's grace in our life. Isn't that remarkable? There's nothing that you're going to face in the absence of God's grace. And it's all because of this astonishing night. You guys are all works in progress. Joseph and Mary were works in progress. They had not arrived. They had not hit this peak level of sanctification when Jesus was born. They were just people. They were just people. They were just people that you wouldn't probably have looked twice at had they been walking down the street in front of you and let, yet God used them and he sanctified them and he gave them to us as an example of what God can do with anybody regardless of their circumstances. 
if they just step forward in obedience and say, I'm here, Lord. What do you need me to do? Well, the Lord wants us to bow our hearts and our heads in repentance towards him so that we can receive the gift of Advent, which is Christ. And we're going to give ourselves opportunities to do that all through the season. We're also going to take communion today. And what communion does is it connects us with the mission of Jesus. So Jesus was sent to die, to live, but to die. To die, but to raise again. To, raise, to ra rise again, but also to ascend back to heaven so that we could have assurance that there will be life after death for those who put their trust in Christ. And so when we take of the cup, we take of the bread, we are remembering. We are remembering our desperate need for him because at the end of the day, we are all impoverished. Our souls are impoverished before God and we need, we need the lifeblood of Jesus so that we can have life. And so as we take communion, we're reminded of the night before Jesus' death when he said, hey, eat this bread. Let it remind you of my broken body. Drink this cup. Let it remind you of my shed blood because without that, we're all people who are just playing this thing called church and we don't have any hope. But because Jesus is alive, it's different, it's changed. We have new stories. And so communion is a celebration of the new story that we have because of Jesus. Amen? If that is not you, you are seconds away if you humble yourself before God of having that new origin story. It's a matter of just going before God and saying, Lord, I, I don't have it. I need you. I need the forgiveness that Christ offers me because of his work on the cross because I don't have it. I don't have what it takes to have peace with you on my own. And if you go before God and you say, Lord, I wanna, I wanna receive all that Christ has for me because of his work for me, the Lord will give that to you graciously. And then you will be able to join us for communion and be strengthened by it. But if that's not you yet, we just ask that you hold back because it doesn't really make any sense for you to partake of something before you come into that relationship with Jesus. So I'm gonna pray, and as I pray, the ushers are gonna come forward. We have two stations up here, we have a station in the back. When you grab your elements, grab a family member or a friend, and just take a minute to pray and take the elements together. We wanna do this as a community so that it's even more enriching. So let me pray. Lord, we thank you we thank you for the origin story of Joseph and Mary. Lord, we thank you that we can see just the level of grace that you had on them. We also see how you do things so differently. You do things differently than we would do things. And you brought your son into the world in a way that would reflect his heart for us, which is that he is gentle and lowly. He is not a king in a mansion, but he was born in a manger. He was humble-hearted, Lord, so that he could receive those of us who come to him with humble hearts. And I pray that we would all have humble hearts today, that we would remember the cost of your people 
and of Christ as he came into the world and as he suffered and died so that we might have life. Lord, that's what Christmas is. Christmas is the origin story of life everlasting. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that it would ring, uh, it would ring a renewed truth to us because it has become dull um, because we are just inundated with so much Christmas. And so, Lord, we need to remember and be reminded of what this was and the depth that we have when we think of the scandal and the poverty and the obedience of those who brought your son into the world. Lord, let let that change us. Let that encourage us, Lord, as you receive us in our prayers today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.